0: I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we explore the woods deliberately with the man who made the woods around Walden Pond some of the most famous in the world, Henry David Thoreau, as he and his contemporaries pronounced it. He's forever associated with Ralph Waldo Emerson and a transcendental movement. They were close friends, and Emerson was his mentor even if their relationship was, uh, you know, tenuous at times.
0: Well, honestly, his relationships with everyone were shaky. I mean, some people called them too stoical. Some accused him of not being able to bond with people. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I do know that reputation and impact has grown over time, and we've come to see him as a person who discusses struggles of modern life that impact our world maybe in greater ways than they impacted his. If you remember from last episode, the American Transcendental Movement centered around this little town of Concord, Massachusetts. However, of all the transcendental writers, only Thoreau was born in Concord. He was 14 years younger than Ralph Waldo Emerson, and like Emerson, went to Harvard University. His parents were not elite people. His father owned and operated a local pencil factory. They had borders in their home that his mother took care of. When Thoreau graduated from Harvard in 1837 after having done really well in school. I mean, his family, like everyone else, probably expected him to go out in the world, be a doctor, a lawyer, a preacher, but he didn't. He came home. Two of his older siblings were teachers, and so he kind of fell into that. He took a job at the teacher of uh, Concord Public School, but he wasn't suited for teaching in that day. And had to resign after only working for two weeks. Two weeks. Hmm. Yeah, it was a problem because he was not comfortable with spanking children. Oh, okay. And not spanking children uh, would get you fired in those days.
1: Wow. (laughs) Things have changed. <laughs> yes. Uh Well, I, I will say, though, if you uh, read either Walden or Civil Disobedience, it's not really surprising that he had a problem with that. No, it isn't. Uh, Thoreau, whatever you say about his interrelationships, um, he always had a deep respect for individual choice, uh, down to a respect for the natural world. And, you know, this predates his relationship with Emerson even. Uh, you could say that Thoreau was a transcendentalist before he even knew about it.
0: Yes, but Thoreau had read Emerson by the time he took his first teaching job. He hadn't read Self-Reliance because it hadn't been written yet. But Thoreau read Nature as a senior in college, and he heard Emerson lecture at Harvard. And after getting fired from that Concord school, Thoreau and his brother John... Started their own school because they wanted to have a school with their own principles. And that school did well. They taught the classics, you know, Greek, Latin, all the things they were supposed to do, but they had a vision to incorporate activities. And they did trips into nature, practical things, uh, things we find inventive today. Thoreau taught his students about birds and flowers by taking them outside. He showed them foxtons and deer tracks. There's an account where he fed chipmunks from his hands in front of the class. He took them on a boat, and that's how he taught them about the American Revolution as they floated down the Sudbury River and looked at all the battlefields. One of Thoreau's students was seven-year-old Louisa May Alcott, who we may recognize that name as the author of Little Women. It is said... That she had a crush on Thoreau most of her life.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, another fun fact about those few years uh, when the brothers ran the school was that they both fell in love with the same girl, Ellen Sewell. And I'm going to guess that was awkward.
0: Well, what happened was Henry fell in love with his brother's girlfriend. And when she turned John down for the marriage proposal, he thought, well, I guess I'll take a shot.
1: (laughs) That doesn't sound good. That would make Thanksgiving dinner awkward with the family.
0: Well, it would have, except she turned him down, too. So there wasn't anything to fight about. I mean, her father did not approve of them. They had these unorthodox religious beliefs. It's interesting, though, that Thoreau never had another romantic relationship. Relationship, the least that we know of, there's been some speculation as to why, but nothing definitive uh, has ever been disclosed. The bottom line is, Henry's closest relationships were not romantic, but his friendships, his family. He had gobs of friends, and his family was the center of his world. He and John were especially close until John got tetanus and died of lockjaw in Henry's arms. And this, of course, was devastating to the point that Thoreau actually developed physical symptoms. He actually developed lockjaw, even though he didn't have it. John's death also forced him to shut down the school because he couldn't run it by himself, and he had to go back to work for his father making pencils.
1: (laughs) You know, Thoreau's contribution to the pencil-making industry is something that most people don't know about. Uh, And if he had any interest in entrepreneurship, he really could have been a very successful businessman, while, um, working at his father's factory, he figured out how to get the graphite to bind with glass inside the wood of the pencil in a way that the pencil could write without pushing it down so hard and without smudging. This is a big deal and basically what today we would call the number two lead pencil. <laughs> He developed it, but then just left it. He didn't make any profit from it. I mean, if only he'd known about the testing industry that would force students to buy (laughs) millions of those things. I know,
0: like number two pencils give people PTSD. (laughs) But uh, as we know from Walden, you know, he, he had a knack for engineering. He literally built his own house and he made all kinds of things. He was an expert surveyor. He engineered fixes for everyday problems. But monetizing that skill was not his jam. He worked hard, uh, but if he was going to do labor for other people, he wanted to be a day laborer because he wanted to have the freedom to work when and where he wanted. As a long-term career, that was not his interest. He wanted to be a lecturer. He wanted to be a writer, just like Emerson. And in 1841, he kind of got his chance. After they met, Emerson invited him to move in with him to live, and he did, and he worked as a handyman for Emerson. Thoreau could fix anything. He could grow anything. He could make anything that he could imagine. And this apparently was remarkable to the point that at Thoreau's eulogy, years later, Emerson talked about this. Let me read what he said. He said, His senses were acute, his frame well, knit and hardy, his hands skillful in the use of tools. But while living with the Emerson's, Thoreau got to know a lot of famous people, including Margaret Fuller, who was the editor of the very successful and influential transcendental magazine, The Dial, and she published some of Thoreau's stuff. And this is more in line with what Thoreau envisioned for himself instead of making pencils or building things. And so Emerson gave him a letter of introduction, and Thoreau headed to New York City, Formerly, he was supposed to be the tutor for Emerson's nephew, but the idea was that he would make connections, potentially get a job working at the New York Publishers. However, New York City did not pan out for Henry David Thoreau. Uh,
1: Which is really easy to understand. I can't imagine a person more unfit to live in New York City than America's first environmental activist.
0: I know. Thoreau is one of those people that is really wedded to the land, uh, but he's also wedded to his hometown. I mean, he was Concord, this little town of 2,000 people. Everyone knew him there. Everyone knew his family, and he knew every nook and cranny of those woods that surround Concord. The most beautiful passages of Walden are the ones where he describes the ponds and the land around Walden. This man truly loved this little place on earth, and reading his passionate relationship with the land and the positive effect that it had is the best part of his work. However, he hits a low moment, and that creates a place where he does something some people have called desperate. On April 30th in 1844, Thoreau and a buddy were out fishing, and they decided to cook their catch on the shore of a place called Fairhaven Pond. Unfortunately, it was very dry and they set a fire. According to the newspapers, this fire was outrageous and it took hours to put out. The damage from the little fire which grew was estimated at over $2,000 at the time. It burned down 300 acres of forest and it almost set the entire town on fire. Everyone in town knew who had started it, The newspaper called it, and I quote, an act of sheer carelessness. And Thoreau, the naturalist who prided himself on being so close to nature of all people everyone knew should have known better. This fire branded Thoreau for the rest of his life, and he was called things, I want to quote the things they called him, the woods burner. They called him a damn rascal. Six years later, he would write about the event and try to explain it away, But that right there tells you what a big deal it was.
1: So, are you suggesting that Thoreau's response to the fallout from the fire was to move out to the community pond outside of town and just live there?
0: Kind of. But it was more than that. I mean, here he is. He's 28 years old. He's a graduate from college. He has no job. His brother had died in his arms. He'd asked a girl to marry him, and she'd rejected him. He was stuck making pencils for a living. He wanted to be a writer but he hated new york he accidentally burned down his entire hometown then he had to read about it in the newspaper i mean that's a lot and by the spring of 1845 and things were looking bad and he got a letter from one of his new york buddies and this is what the letter said quote i see nothing for you in this earth but that field which i once christens briars go out upon that Build yourself a hut, and there begin the grand process of devouring yourself alive. I see no alternative, no other hope for you. Eat yourself up. You will eat nobody else, nor anything else.
1: Wow, and that was from a friend, huh? (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, you
1: know, that's kind of what he did. Uh, That piece of property, uh, his friend called Briar's, was this wooded 12-acre area uh, around a lake a couple of miles outside of town uh, and it had been kind of abandoned and had become really a community property uh, of sorts. Lots of people used that pond as a swimming hole. People fished there. Uh, some homeless people even lived out there. Emerson decided to buy it with the idea that he might build a riding lodge on it and uh, he ended up never doing that but he gave thorough permission to go be a squatter on it.
0: Yes, and Thoreau, by the way, is really known for two pieces of writing. One would be this quasi-documentary of his time living at Walden Pond, and that's called Walden. The other, which we'll talk about next episode, is the highly influential political essay, Civil Disobedience. When people think of Thoreau, they either think of Thoreau the naturalist, the guy who went out into the woods, the ecologist, the preservationist... The guy we give credit as being the first American outside of the Native American community to advocate for the natural environment, not just preserving it, but living in harmony with it. I mean, he's very influential in this natural kind of way. And Walden, for the most part, speaks to that. But then there's this other thorough. The guy who refused to pay his taxes because he didn't want to support any government that enslaved people. And he was against the War of Aggression, specifically the Mexican-American War. He was a crusader who defended John Brown, the terrorist. He's the guy who wrote the essay that would eventually one day influence Mahatma Gandhi and later Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.,
1: and let's add to that resume, don't forget that Thoreau was also a part of the Underground Railroad, and his house was a stop for at least two and maybe more runaway slaves on their way to Canada.
0: So some people think, you know, this is two different people, but they are not. It's one person, and one seems kind of zen, stoic, uninterested in the things of this world. The other seems very politically engaged, But yet, it's the same principles that were driving both sides of him. The supreme respect for freedom, he affords it to nature, but he also affords it to humans. He has this compelling drive, and he talks about this in the first chapter of Walden, this deep desire to be good. And he defines this very differently than, quote, what he calls doing good. Being good speaks of being in a state of harmony with yourself, with the world at large, and a commitment to fulfilling or facilitating this kind of harmony in other people. And that's the setup. Walden, the book, is divided into 18 chapters. The first two are likely the most famous. Uh, There are quotes in them that we've all heard or seen. Some of them we didn't even know that's where they came from. So let's begin.
1: When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I had built myself on the shore of Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, and earned my living by the labor of my hands only, I lived there two years and two months. At present, I am a sojourner in civilized life again.
0: So, what we see is that in 1845, he claimed that it was pure coincidence, uh, but he built a house and he moved in on July 4th. He moved to Walden, but he didn't write the entirety of the book there. And it's the progress of Thoreau the person as we watch him develop through the pages that give testimony and support to the moral message of the book. At the time, he told people that he wanted to go out there and he would write a book that would memorialize his brother John, the one that died. And he did that. I mean, that book is called A Week on the Concord and the Merrimack Rivers. But it wasn't well received and that book didn't make very much money. However, he learned a few things from publishing that book, and a few years, years later, he would publish Walden, and it was way more successful. He started writing Walden, of course, as he said in that first paragraph that you read, during the lake years. Uh, he started it really not as a book, but as a lecture in response to questions that people were having about why the heck he was living out there. I mean, here he is, he's an oddball. Here's this guy, he moved into a micro house on a pond, one mile out of town, nobody knew why, and this drew a lot of attention, And to the point that he really became a local celebrity. But he didn't actually publish the book until 1854. He would revise it, especially the second half of the book, because he learned from the feedback that he got that his style had a tendency to be too preachy, and that was turning off his readers. One misunderstanding that people have is they think that Walden is going to be a chronicle of his time there, and it isn't. That's not the structure. It's not chronological. It's arguably not even really super biographical. It's better, you know, I've heard other terms used for it that are better. It's called a poem of the seasons or myth of the year, because he's going to use the ponds the natural environment, the seasons he experiences while living at Walden to make an argument about the best way to approach life, uh, a strategy to find authenticity in yourself. So in the book, he tells us he stayed at the pond full time for two years and two months. But the book doesn't read like that. It reads over the course of four seasons and it ends in the spring He's going to draw from the sights and the sounds of the pond on his experiences there. And many of them may have occurred after he left his time of being a quasi-resident there. Those things, those details doesn't really, they don't really matter. The middle chapter is called The Ponds. And this chapter is the most artistic. He describes the ponds that he experiences, how he experiences them, the emotions they invoke. This is a chapter of love, and it's not an accident that it's in the middle. Walden Pond is the central metaphor of the book.
1: And that's what's hard to understand if you're not a literature person. This is not a book describing a person's experiences outdoors. Um, You know, he is making claims. And Walden in the woods and the bean fields, all that is evidence. And, um, you know, I will say uh, he's been accused of being preachy. And especially in the beginning, Walden is preachy.
0: Well, I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, I mean, it's braggadocious to be talking about building your house for $28 and a borrowed axe. It's, f- it's not fair to make claims of grandeur because, you know, people see it. He had a lot of help and he had advantages that lots of people don't have in this world. So when he talks about living out in this shack, you know, it wasn't rough. He plastered it for the winter and it was warm and he had the luxury of moving back in with his mom while the plaster was drying that's bothered people and that's justifiable but it's better to get past all that because the real body of evidence is his life at walden i mean he presents two worlds the world of man and the world of nature and we get to see growth i mean he shows up in 1845 in the woods as one person and there's no doubt, by the time he publishes this book in 1854, he's a different person. The first chapter, uh, the most preachy, I think, really, uh, entitled Economy, prevents a man that's provocative. He's trying to provoke us, and this is the one that's been called condescending and judgmental. Uh, and I'll be honest, the way he says things may not be the best, but the things that he's saying about us and about life they're not necessarily wrong. It's just not written in a way that we want to hear it. Here's an excerpt
1: Some of you, we all know, are poor, find it hard to live, are sometimes, as it were, gasping for breath. I have no doubt that some of you who read this book are unable to pay for all the dinners which you have actually eaten, or for the coats and shoes, which are fast-wearing or are already worn out, and have come to this page to spend borrowed or stolen time robbing your creditors of an hour. It is very evident what mean and sneaking lives many of you live, <laughs> for my side has been wetted by experience, always on the limits, trying to get into business and trying to get out of debt, a very ancient slough called by the Latins, aeus alienum, Another's brass, for some of their coins were made of brass, still living and dying and buried by this other's brass, always promising to pay, promising to pay tomorrow and dying today, insolvent, seeking to curry favor to get custom by how many modes only not state. Only not state prison offenses, lying, flattering, voting, contracting yourselves into a nutshell of civility, or dilating into an atmosphere of thin and vaporous generosity, that you may persuade your neighbor to let you make his shoes, or his hat, or his coat, or his carriage, or import his groceries for him, making yourself sick, that you may lay up something against a sick day, something to be tucked away in an old chest, or in a stocking behind the plastering, or more safely, in the brick bank, no matter where, no matter how much or how little.
0: So you get the tone. <laughs> I mean, he's talking about real life. Many of us do struggle financially. Perhaps we live in debt or live in the way he calls mean. I mean, he continues on this vein uh, of how we're living until he finally gets to those famous words. I was <laughs> so making my nose run the talk.
1: The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them for this comes after work. But it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things.
0: Quiet desperation. We've seen it portrayed in so many movies. I mean, the gray drudgery of anonymously going back and forth to an office cubicle, no friends, no control, no healthy human connection, maybe an unsatisfied family, always in debt, nothing exciting in the horizon— everyday living, surviving, but never doing anything that you want to do.
1: (laughs) Wow. Well, his use of that word desperation is what really catches people's attention. Uh, The person he's describing isn't going out and doing crime. He's not killing anyone but himself. And this is a person who's actually trying to be a good person.
0: Yes, and likely is a good person. The quietly desperate person isn't a fulfilled person. This is a, the kind of person whose goal is just to make it into the evening so you can have a vape or, or yourself medicating with antidepressants, or you just sit in front of your TikTok for hours staring blankly into nothing. This is a person that is bored and your goal is to escape or numbness. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can interpret and have interpreted what it looks like to live in quiet desperation. This is different from generation to generation. But Thoreau will describe it as a world filled with people of unconscious despair. That is the intended reader of this book, the T.S. Eliot proof rocks. But what we see is he doesn't have sympathy for this kind of person, a person in this situation. In fact, he's critical of this person. He holds every reader responsible for their condition, not the circumstances of their lives. The subtext is I took hold of my life, and you should do the same thing.
1: Near the end of March, 1845, I borrowed an axe and went down to the woods by Walden Pond, nearest to where I intended to build my house, and began to cut down some tall, airy, white pines, still in their youth, for timber. It is difficult to begin without borrowing, but perhaps it is the most generous course, thus, to permit your fellow men to have an interest in your enterprise. The owner of the axe, as he released his hold on it, said that it was the apple of his eye, but I returned it sharper than I received it. It was a pleasant hillside where I worked, covered with pine woods, through which I looked out on the pond and a small open field in the woods, where pines and hickories were springing up. The ice in the pond was not yet dissolved, though there were some open spaces, and it was all dark-colored and saturated with water. There were some slight flurries of snow during the day so that I worked there. But for the most part, when I came out onto the railroad on my way home, its yellow sand heap stretched away gleaming in the hazy atmosphere, and the rails shone in the spring sun. And I heard the lark and pewee and other birds already come to commence with another year with us. They were pleasant spring days in which the winter of man's discontent was thawing as well as the earth, And the life that had lain torpid began to stretch itself.
0: And so we're introduced to the symbols that carry the book. The pond, the seasons, the morning light. Those are the things that we need to be paying attention to as we read. If the most famous line in the book comes out of chapter 1, the most widely read chapter is chapter 2, titled, Where I Lived and What I Lived For. A part of this chapter is engraved on a plaque where Thoreau's house at Walden once stood. Let's read that.
1: We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake, not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us in our sound asleep. sleep. I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture— or to carve a statue, and so to make a few objects beautiful, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Every man is tasked to make this his life, even in its details, worthy of the contemplation of his most elevated and critical hour." Basically saying that we must look at our lives as art, that we are our own artwork. I mean, it's encouraging that we can, and actually, it's our responsibility. We must, according to Thoreau.
0: Right. And the line, to affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. Now, that's what's important. Every man is tasked to make his life, even in his details, worthy of contemplation of his most elevated and critical hour. He calls that a calling. I mean, he's not saying we're supposed to be rich or successful academically or professional. He's not saying that our bodies have to be perfect, that we should be good neighbors, a good family people, good citizens. He's leaving those decisions to the artist. Change how you view your life. Look at your life every day as an elevated form of art.
1: Well, you know, the problem is that Art is not easy. I mean, uh, uh, how can I elevate my everyday mundane life to a piece of art?
0: Hence, the answer is in the narrative. This is the passage that is engraved at Walden Pond.
1: I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation, unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life to live so sturdily and spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms, and, if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world, or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion."
0: I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately. I mean that sentence has been so meaningful for so many people and pay attention to how carefully it's worded. That word deliberate, it's a pun. Of course we know that deliberate means to be on purpose and, and thoreau means it like that. We should have a life that's on purpose. But to deliberate, that's the verb form, and that's to think things through, to consider your problems carefully. And Thoreau means it that way too. Think through your reality carefully. Don't take other people's values as your values on face value. Don't let the judgment of your community be your judgment. But if you look at that word a third time, the word deliberate contains within it the, the word liberate or to make free. And Thoreau means it that way too. He went to the woods to live deliberately because that's how You can find freedom.
1: That is a big ask. Uh, Can the woods deliver that? Can a pond possibly deliver that?
0: Well, not for everyone, but the pond is a metaphor. Essentially, Walden is about being reborn. Thoreau wants us to be reborn, and he's accepting the premise that we saw in Emerson's work That nature plays a key role in making that happen. He wants to live deeply. Listen to what he said, to suck the marrow out of life.
1: Our life is frittered away by detail. An honest man has hardly need to count more than his ten fingers, or in extreme cases, he may add his ten toes and lump the rest. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, and not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen, and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. In the midst of this chopping sea of civilized life, such are the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand and one items to be allowed for that a man has to live if he would not founder and go to the bottom and not make his port at all by dead reckoning, and he must be a great calculator indeed who succeeds." Simplify, simplify. Instead of three meals a day, if it be necessary, eat but one. Instead of a hundred dishes, five. And reduce other things in proportion.
0: He'll say it over and over again. Simplify, simplify.
1: Well, you know, he's talking about all the responsibilities that that we take up, and they do stack up. I mean, his first piece of advice is basically to strip down, and that's not difficult to understand. I mean, it's painful. Uh, Growing up, if you're a healthy person, that whole experience is about taking on responsibilities. Uh, we start doing this as teenagers, really not even realizing that's what we're doing. For, you know, for example, you take on the responsibility of uh, making your own connections in the world. So you you commit to a Snapchat streak with a friend, uh, and that's fun. But now it's a burden, and you have to keep up with it. Before you know it, you have ninety five streaks that you have to keep up with, and now you have anxiety. Uh, I mean, you want to create a public image of yourself, uh, an independent identity. So you commit to posting on Instagram. Now you have to post and keep up with your posts. And like other people's posts, guess what that is? That's a responsibility. (laughs) You get invited to a celebration dinner for a friend. Now you have to have the clothes and nice ones. So you buy nice uh, Jordans for this dinner. (laughs) Now you must find a place to store them. Worry that no one steals them or steps on them. Guess what that is?
0: <laughs> anxiety. An anxiety. As
1: you get older, the stakes just get higher. I mean, you commit to owning a car. That means insurance and gas and a place to park, and it has to get washed and maintained protected from getting stolen or scratched. And guess what that is?
0: Responsibility, anxiety. Anxiety. So
1: you commit to a girlfriend or a boyfriend, then a family. I mean, we don't have time to get into all these responsibilities, but, you know, even good things are details that have to be tended to. And, we haven't even gotten into responsibilities for our mistakes or our bad choices. That's a whole other category, uh, you know, or things that weren't our mistakes but ended up being our messes that we had to clean up. And you know, all of those are the details that fritter away our lives, to use his words. And what do they create?
0: Anxiety.
1: <laughs> so, what's his fix?
0: Simplify. Oh, okay. And he's been criticized for this. And and the the objection is that that's just an oversimplification. Everyone can't just leave everything and go into the woods. And, of course, Thoreau agrees. And he's going to tell you up front, going to the woods isn't the course for everyone. But it was for him. And it doesn't deny his point. Simplify. Simplify simplify it's in the details that you find your anxiety there's things you can drop we own too much we rush too much why should we live lives with such hurry and waste of life those are his words walden for him was a place and for us it's a metaphor for a lifestyle choice that's different than what we're living now would it be so bad if we said uh I'll just have to wear this outdated outfit or have a used car or just drop off social media for a while.
1: Well, it's basically a cost-benefit analysis question that he's asking. Um, he's saying these are questions we should ask ourselves, like why should we be obsessed with news? Uh, you know, as a political junkie, that kind of hits home, and uh, he says this, "'Hardly a man takes a half-hour's nap after dinner, "'but when he wakes, he holds up his head and asks, "'What's the news?' "'As if the rest of mankind had stood his sentinels. "'Some give directions to be waked every half-hour, "'doubtless for no other purpose, "'and then to pay for it, they tell you that they have dreamed. "'I mean, after a night's sleep, "'the news is as indispensable as the breakfast.'" pray tell me anything new that has happened to a man anywhere on this globe. And he reads it over his coffee and rolls that a man has had his eyes gouged out this morning on the Wachito River, never dreaming the while that he lives in the dark, unfathomed mammoth cave of this world and has but the rudiment of an eye himself. He goes on to say, to a philosopher, all news, as it is called, is gossip. And they who edit and read it, are old women over their tea, (laughs) yet not a few are greedy after this gossip. So, um, anyway, so why do we uh, feel this constant need to know everything in real time?
0: Right, and he's not just talking about politics. I mean... I check my phone dozens of times a day, and I'm not even a news junkie. There's Instagram and LinkedIn and text messages and work email and personal email and podcast email. Now I do be real. Oh my
1: gosh! Oh, you know, but it could be worse. Uh, you could do TikTok, Snapchat, all that. I mean, I looked up uh, that as of 2023. There are roughly 128 different social media platforms you could be managing (laughs) right now.
0: I mean, and thorough challenges, all that. We lose the deliberateness of our lives, and this creates anxiety. I mean, his two-year experiment at Walden had this simplifying spiritual purpose. Was nature uh, and simplification an avenue to find freedom? I mean, it was to him. It was a way to find truth, to find God, to find peace. And that's the rhetorical journey of the book. Watching a man identify himself with these basic rhythms of nature, looking divinity in this pond. The seasons in the book take us through the journey of rebirth. Thoreau uses a lot of archetypal symbols in the book. Pay attention. The sun. I mean, that's a symbol for the source of life. The God, truth, all that's coming out in the morning. We're going to see water. Let me quote Thoreau here. I got up early and bathed in the pond. That was a religious exercise and one of the best things I did. Every day Thoreau would spend effort with the objective and intentionally renewing himself bathing is literally physically renewing but it was also spiritual for him he uses the term he talks about reading the hindu scriptures the bhagavad-gita and he uses the term bathing his intellect the central symbol of the book the heart of the book is the pond laura wells she's one of the foremost scholars today of thoreau um she says the pond is a cosmogram That's a really interesting way to think of the pond. Gary, what is a cosmogram?
1: (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, um, a cosmogram uh, graphically is basically a circle with a cross through the center. Yeah, its purpose is to find one's understanding of the world. Um, You know, so in this case, Thoreau looked at this pond every day. He literally surveyed it. He physically measured every inch of it, which was an engineering accomplishment when you think about it, and he figured out that the center point of this pond was uh, unusually and in fact extraordinarily deep. So every day as he looked at life, he thought of it in terms of this pond, and Uh, Walden does not have an outside river flowing into it. Its source comes from within. It is uh, usually deep, uh, so deep, in fact, that lots of local people during Thoreau's day thought it was bottomless. And for Thoreau, this was uh, spiritually important. I mean, things to think of in terms of our own life.
0: Why, here is Walden, the same woodland lake that I discovered so many years ago, where a forest was cut down last winter, another is springing up by its shore as lustily as ever. The same thought is well up to its surface. That was then. It is the same liquid joy and happiness to itself and its maker. I, and maybe to me. It is the work of a brave man, surely, in whom there was no guile. He rounded this water with his hand, deepened and clarified it in his thought. And in his will bequeathed it to Concord. I see by its face that it is visited by the same reflection, and I can almost say, Walden, is it you? It is no dream of mine to ornament a line. I cannot come nearer to God in heaven than I live to Walden even. I am its stony shore, and the breeze that passes o'er and the hollow of my hand are its water and its sand, and its deepest resort lies in my thought." (laughs)
1: You know, uh, what is it that we're supposed to be seeing in this poem that's inside the book?
0: Well, you know, Walden was Thoreau's redeemer. I mean, let me keep reading what he says. A lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is the earth's eye looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. Walden is a perfect forest mirror, set round with stones as precious to my eyes as if fewer or rare. It is a mirror which no stone can crack, whose quicksilver will never wear off, whose gilding nature continually repairs. Uh,
1: I think most of us see Walden um, as thorough going far away to live in total isolation, uh, but really that is not the Walden experiment at all, is it?
0: No, Uh, And that's where he gets misjudged. I mean, Thoreau was not trying to be a monk or a philosopher spending 30 years in a hut depriving himself of human connection or, you know, real food. I mean, he states very clearly that he's not alone. He has an entire chapter titled Visitors. Let me quote that chapter. I think I love society as much as most and I'm ready enough to fasten myself like a bloodsucker for the... for the time to any full-blooded man that comes my way. I am naturally no hermit, but might possibly sit out the sturdiest week winner of a bar room if my business called me thither. I had three chairs in my house, one for solitude, two for friendship, three for society. I mean, he goes on to say that he would have as many as 25 to 30 people in this one room shack at a time.
1: (laughs) There you go. You know, Thoreau was stripping down and engaging nature in a way, um, you know, that's more realistic for most of us to do, uh, not that any of us will live in a literally a mini house, but I think it's an interesting point that he didn't seek to deprive himself of community, just simplify his involvement in it, uh, you know, and not even forever, uh, just for a specific length of time, really, in order to reorder his life.
0: Yes, and I think that's the best way to read Walden. I mean, if you're one of those readers, which I am, who finds the beginning of the book kind of judgy, um, you know, I find myself softening as I read through it, as I read through his descriptions of the natural world. There's still a lot of commanding language in the, in the end, uh, but it's not as condescending. I mean, Walden has repaired Thoreau, and he speaks with an authority at the end of the book that I don't hear in the beginning. There's a way of looking at this book, as seeing the chapters before the chapters of the pond is being maybe about him arriving at this place of redemption and looking at the chapters after the pond is seeing him come up with this, you know, ability to reenter society, maybe as a different person. The book highlights specific experiences, things that oriented him, specifically his bean fields. I mean, his relationships with different humans, his relationships with animals, with plant life, specifically with the water um, the chapters about winter and spring—they're particularly emotional, but it always comes back to the pond.
1: I am thankful that this pond was made deep and pure for a symbol. Let us work our feet downward through the mud and slush of opinion and tradition and appearance till we come to a hard bottom, which we will call reality.
0: The natural world it turns out can be a mirror which reflects truth, and so. After he finds it, he feels like he can leave. and the conclusion, Thoreau bluntly says, I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. He goes on to say, I learned this at least by my experience, that if one advances confidently, th- that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He says this, In proportion as he simplifies his life, the laws of the universe will appear less complex, and solitude will not be solitude. Poverty will not be poverty, nor weakness, weakness. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. What do you think of that, Gary?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he found courage in being uh, comfortable with his authentic self. I mean, uh, we literally read this in his conclusions where he says, Why should we be in such desperate haste to succeed and in such desperate enterprises? If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. It is not important that he should mature as soon as an apple tree or an oak. Shall we turn the spring into the summer and I would like to point out in my childhood growing up, my mother had this poster on a wall in our house, <laughs> and I you know it's so so funny for it to come back like that. Uh, Thoreau discovered that it, it was okay to be the town weirdo. Uh, if if that's what he was, that's what he was. He was able to own that, that he was the guy who set the forest on fire. Uh, but that wasn't all that he was. He says this, uh, However mean your life is, meet it and live it. Do not shun it and call it hard names. It is not so bad as you are. It looks poorest when you are richest. The fault finder will find faults even in paradise. Love your life, poor as it is. You may perhaps have some pleasant, thrilling, glorious hours, even in a poor house. The setting sun is reflected from the windows of the almshouse as brightly as from the rich man's abode. The snow melts before its door as early in the spring. I do not see, but a quiet mind may live as contentedly there and have as cheering thoughts as in a palace. The town's poor seem to me often to live the most independent lives of any. Maybe they are simply great enough to receive without misgiving. Most think that they are above being supported by the town, but it oftener happens that they are not above supporting themselves by dishonest means, which should be more disreputable. Cultivate poverty like a garden herb, like sage, Do not trouble yourself much to get new things, whether clothes or friends. Turn the old, return to them. Things do not change. We change. Sell your clothes and keep your thoughts. (laughs) I mean, if the book begins with judgment, it ends with encouragement.
0: It does. And, And the final line of the book is this. There is more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. That is the very opposite of quiet desperation the spirit of freedom to not change who you are but be free to be who you are and turn your life into art every dawn emerges new before a divine morning star i mean these words have inspired so many people over the last couple hundred years
1: It's most certainly has so um, I guess we should be inspired to get outside and enjoy (laughs) spring or autumn or summer or whenever uh, whatever season it is go find your Walden you know as always uh, if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend Uh, push it out on your social media text it to a friend play it for a class if you're a teacher when you share we grow Um, if you're a teacher check out our listening guides and other resources on our website we have merchandise as everybody needs that and (laughs) next episode we will look at Thoreau's political contribution his famous essay civil disobedience thank you for sharing in our discussion today and enjoy your week
0: peace out